Jared, I'll do it. You're listening to Here's the Catch with David Lombardi, Matt Barrows, and Dennis Brown on the Athletic Podcast Network. Hello again. Obviously, it's time from different parts of the Bay Area. David Lombardi here, Matt Barrows down in San Jose, Dennis Brown at his house in San Francisco. We are all safely far apart from each other as we have been for the last several weeks. So obviously not the most opportune circumstances uh, to be recording a podcast because we know a lot of people around the world... A lot of people in our listener base are going through a time of hardship right now, uh, but we'll do our best to try to give you guys something to help pass these long days a little bit quicker. Guys, uh, how are you holding up? I know, Dennis, uh, I guess you first. We were talking a little bit before we started recording. Uh, You've been able to to give back to the community a little bit during uh, these unprecedented times. Yeah, I mean, I I had an opportunity uh, to be connected with a great organization uh, here in San Francisco called Meals on Wheels. Uh, and basically what they do, they deliver uh, meals to the elderly uh, in San Francisco. These are folks who are, are um, physically unable to get to the grocery store or, or even cook for themselves. Uh, so Meals on Wheels provides six days a week meals to a lot of elderly people in San Francisco. And with this pandemic going on, you know, they are the high risk. So it's super important to keep them safe uh, and make sure they stay, you know, isolated uh, in in their place where they live at. So Meals on Wheels does a fantastic job just delivering meals. Now, the hard part is that a lot of the volunteers they had before this all hit San Francisco um, were actually elderly people delivering to elderly people. So uh, since those folks have decided that it's more important for them to kind of self-contain and isolate in their homes, uh, volunteers were needed and, and they've really been kind of stressed throughout this whole thing. So for the last for the last couple of weeks, I've been going out to San Francisco and delivering meals to folks in San Francisco. And it's been, you know, it's been extremely powerful. Uh, and I've, I, I have an, a, a route today to do and it, and it's, and it's, and it's about giving back and I'm trying to, to stay in service during this, this kind of tough time. So it's, it's, it's been a great experience. No, that's, that, that's a great job. And, uh, uh kudos to you for doing that. that that's an, a big issue in the South Bay here too. Uh, the demand for meals on wheels has gone up. And as you noted, the, the driver's have gone down because uh, you're right. Uh, many of those drivers are elderly themselves, and the, the 49ers initially made a, a donation. I think it was five hundred thousand dollars toward nonprofits uh, during the, the this coronavirus uh, time, and uh, Meals on Wheels was one of those that uh, that get benefited. And I think uh, a lot of people don't realize how important nonprofits like that are. That they basically prop up uh the 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 government the the, the county health care system all that stuff uh you know the the nonprofits donations like that uh are really what's kind of keeping that chugging along and everybody is uh stretched uh, to the bitter end right now given given the demand that uh this virus has had so uh big uh big kudos to to Dennis that's fantastic that you're doing that yeah two thumbs up that's awesome yeah, and it, it, it's been great. And they provide us with protection, you know, the masks, the gloves, and, and you know, when you're driving around, there's no contact. You just kind of knock on doors and kind of announce yourself. But these people depend on it. You know, it's not people who can actually get out. Uh, a lot of my clients are 
or in the older buildings in San Francisco where they can't make it down the stairs and these buildings don't have elevators. You know, imagine if you were if you're an elderly person and you know you can't walk or you're on a walker or you're in a wheelchair and you can't get downstairs to get food. You depend on this organization to bring you food every day, twice a day, uh, for six days a week. So, you know, it's, it's, it's super important. I think, you know, I, I didn't know about this, this organization before, you know, I was connected with it and, 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 it, and it's huge. And I, I think even after this, and I think this is important part, even after this is all done, you know, I plan on still volunteering at this organization because they do fantastic work. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I think that if we're trying to find silver linings here, uh, what you just said, even after this is done, finding something to continue, hopefully, uh, you know, I, I think that humanity can be proud of a lot of the ways that people have stepped up to help each other in this time, and, and people have reframed the way they look at some things. I think that the world, for example, was becoming you know, a rat race here, especially the last 10, 20 years, and then everything just ground to a halt. So what it has done, this whole situation has forced people to slow down, I think, take inventory. And in a lot of cases, people have gone out and, and found the best way to help others. So hopefully once this all gets restarted, that mentality continues, right? And hopefully we can take some of the good in this bad situation and make sure that it's permanent. That's obviously to be seen. Uh, that was actually one of the topics of conversation at this uh, virtual conference that I was uh, attending two weeks ago that featured Al Guido, the 49ers president, and Rick Welts, who's the, the Warriors president. And both of those guys tried to uh, really project uh, the optimistic outlook on things while also acknowledging that we're in an unprecedented negative time. But I think it is very important to keep uh, the optimistic light at the end of the tunnel approach. And one thing that really stood out to me from Al Guido is that he, he said that when sports do get going again, when football is played again, whenever it will be safe and whenever, you know, obviously the authorities will let it happen in the future, he said that he thinks we're going to have a 9-11 kind of moment where, remember, after 9-11, George Bush came out through the first pitch at Yankee Stadium. I think that was ahead of the World Series between the Yankees and the Diamondbacks. And it was a moment of, you know, resurrection for the country. I think Al Guido said he thinks we're going to have similar moments to that, maybe at Levi Stadium, maybe around the NFL. And I think that, you know, in, in times like this where we are in the midst of a tunnel, where people are buried up at home, where, you know, all these different hardships are happening, I think it's pretty cool to think of an exhilarating moment of resurrection like that in the future just to kind of keep your eyes on the prize, right? Keep your eyes on the goal, because if we do get through this, there will be a reward at the end. Yeah, I wonder whether it's going to be uh, bit by bit, whether, uh, you know, the, the first reward will be watching a Major League Baseball game where there's no fans. And then the next step will be, you know, a couple of months later, a, a game, maybe it's a football game uh, where there are fans. I, I just wonder whether it'll, it'll be sort of an incremental uh, return to normal. And uh, th that may be uh, exactly what happens. I know that the, the major league sports are toying with that idea. I was talking to Richard Sherman the other day and he was saying that, you know, he's very well connected with the NFLPA. And so, you know, all those groups are talking about what the NFL is going to do. And he said, there's even been discussion of, of them going to some very isolated part of the country. And we're talking about Idaho or 
North Dakota or South Dakota and, and been playing or at least training there uh, in a spot where the uh, the threat of uh, uh, becoming infected is is, is lower than a, a major metropolitan area. So they're going over all sorts of scenarios to to try to return to some modicum of normalcy. But uh, like I said, it, it might be uh, a couple of steps before we're back to totally normal again. Yeah, and and I think I think all sports are going to have to start, you know, kind of being creative with kind of what they're doing. I saw this morning that the Cage Fighting Federation are they're talking about, you know, buying an island and and you know doing their sport on an island somewhere. So, you know, you start being creative and and you start trying to figure out how you can get sports fired up again. And you know, we see what baseball is going to do. They're talking about Arizona where they're just going to have games there. I was watching television. I don't know if you guys saw this, but the WWF had the big wrestling thing. They were still doing it, but there was no there was no fans, but they were still I think Gronk was in it and they were doing their their big WrestleMania thing. So, organizations are going to try to figure out be a little more creative about how they want to do this because for sure it's important and I think, you know, when basketball went away, I, I wasn't too phased and it's getting closer to football season. So I'm starting to kind of wonder yeah. what's going to happen next. Now it's getting real for Dennis. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah no, seriously. Hey, you know, the, the day that it really got real, I think, in the larger American consciousness was tied to sports. I think when the NBA suspended its operations, I think that was a Wednesday or a Thursday. I forget exactly which. It was sometime in the middle of the week there. It, there was that domino effect of the Rudy Gobert news, the NBA shutting its operations, the NHL followed suit shortly thereafter. But man, everything came crashing down. Do you guys remember that one late afternoon where social media just exploded? Uh, it was that that was a three hour stretch that we'll never forget. I think that's one that we're going to point at as well. This is that was the cataclysmic event, and it went from people planning their lives around this to life just stopping and sports happen to be at the center of it. I think that NBA news for some reason hit most viscerally and I think that ties into Al Guido's point of optimism. He thinks that once we do climb out of this, sports is going to be at the centerpiece again because sports are not only an escape from reality, but they're also, in a way, a representation of reality, right? The competition that happens, the the ups and the downs. Like In one good football game, you could really encapsulate a lot of the emotions that you feel in life. So I think that's why people... Uh, are so drawn to sports because they're this combination of fantasy and reality because they can re- they can relate to some of the players and that's why we try to tell the stories of these players. So um, we're just at a really interesting um, you know point of this, guys, because covering these sports it, it, right now it is people's way to to you know a- at least daydream about what may be in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sports is all about unity and. That's what we're missing right now. Any sense of togetherness because we have to, to isolate. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the first time that we're able to kind of go to a stadium and sing the national anthem and, and do all that stuff together again, uh, I think it's going to be very emotionally powerful. We're going to be without it for, I don't know, I, I think it's going to be a while. I mean, we're, we're talking many months, if not uh, more than that. Yeah, and, you know, you, you talk about, the sport and football and, you know, what's going to happen with it. We got the draft coming up this month, end of the month. But you talk about the players. I mean, you know, you still have to train. It is what you do for a living and, and you have to figure out how you can train. And I know a lot of the OTAs have been canceled. 
Uh, but this is not, you know, the environment is not that you go out and you, you know, go down and you start training. And most of these guys train wherever they train at, but they do it in groups. They do it in, you know, gyms or, you know, someone, you know, have a, a personal trainer, or whatever it is, but you go and you do that. So, you know, the way these guys train, you know, if this season is going to happen, it's going to have to change also. Yeah. Tr- I mean, training in isolation is hard. Uh, I, I mean, yeah. I speak as somebody who really struggles when I don't have a friend or, you yeah. know, I, I was a swimmer growing up, so I got used to a coach yelling at me. So it's really right. hard for me to get in the water and swim by myself. I can't even get in the water now because the pools are all closed around here. But that same mentality I find applies to the gym. I start slacking off, you know, just uh, looking at my phone if you don't have somebody there to hold you accountable. So I think that as we talk to some of these players for the 49ers, I'm sure they're they're going to start talking about some of the same problems. They're more or less in isolation now. You know, you see a guy like Kendrick Bourne, he still has his people he's training up in Washington and, and he's running routes. So it looks like he has his routine down. But other guys, um, Matt wrote about this the other week, are, are having to get really creative without a push themselves. I think Kyle Juszczyk was the was the best example of that. He was up in the snow somewhere on the East Coast and he's lifting logs like he's uh, Rocky, you know, from uh, <laughs> uh, back from those classic movies. So Matt, Matt, what did you gather from that piece? I know you talked to a few of the guys and they are doing... It really, I think, uh, unique stuff, but it definitely seems to be a mental challenge for them because they don't have access to their usual facilities and their usual group camaraderie. Yeah, they were really cognizant of it. I mean, they, they knew Robbie Gold. Uh, I just talked to DJ Jones about it. They knew when it was coming that as soon as there was a shelter in place order in their region, that they weren't going to be able to go to the gym. I mean, and that's their routine. And so they were cognizant of that and they uh you know they, they ordered things online robbie went out to a sports store before it closed down and, and bought some exercise machines and things like that but they're making do with what they got i mean uh dj jones has a has a big hill near his house and that's basically his workout routine he's doing the the jerry rice thing where he runs up up and down this hill there's a, there's a church at the top of it so it's sort of his uh his his marker his goal he runs up to uh to the church and back down again and runs up to the church so make of that what you will there's there's a nice analogy there he's reaching the the promised land with his uh off-season routine uh i do think though that once April 20 rolls around for the 49ers, that was going to be the start of the offseason program. That's when the the team trainers and strength and conditioning coaches uh, would have been able to work with these guys. And those guys are, Dennis will be able to attest to this, those guys are control freaks. They want to know what their guys are doing. And one of the ways they'll do that is to send them iPads. Each of the 49ers will receive an iPad with his personalized instructions on it as far as what you can do, what they should do during the offseason. So that'll be one way to sort of keep tabs on what guys are doing and to kind of get it into a more regimented style of uh, of workout o- over these next few months. Yeah, and you're exactly right. Those conditioning guys and the, the trainers, you know, they used to love the fact uh, when I was in the league, during your off season, you had an off season contract and you had to come in five days a week and you had to work out. So we're not having that now with the new CBA. These guys don't have to be around. So it gets even more challenging now with the stay at home orders type of thing. So it's something, I don't know, iPads. And I think back to DJ Jones and I think about running a hill. I, I know defensive linemen don't run hills very well. I tried the Jerry Rice hill that you made reference to. 
probably got uh, 10 feet up the hill and kind of gave up on it. Me, Dana, and BY. So, you know, I, I wonder what that hill looks like. And I don't think it's a Jerry Rice hill. It may have a church. Uh, maybe a church is chicken, but I, I don't know if it's got a hill like a Jerry Rice hill. But oh, you know, these I looked guys... on Google Maps. It's it's nothing like the Jerry Rice. The, the Jerry Rice <laughs> hill okay, weaves good. up through the the Santa Cruz mountains. I mean, we're talking about yeah. the foothills of the mountains. Yeah. So it's we're talking yeah, yeah, about long South Carolina just, doesn't is, have hills. Exactly. Okay. This okay. is like good. California does. Okay. This is just okay. a hill. So you get to the good. top of the hill. You have to you have to walk back down and then you do it again. But yeah, okay. it's not. <laughs> The the uh, the concept is Jerry Riceian. The the hill gotcha. itself, no, it doesn't okay. compare. DJ, it's a DJ Jonesian hill. It's okay. a Jonesian hill. Because yeah. I tell you, me, me me Bby and and Dana Stubblefield decided we're going to do that Jerry Rice hill because oh, we heard so funny. much about it. So we took a trip out there and and we looked at it. We said, yeah, you know, let's give it a shot. I think I think Bby got the furthest up the hill and he turned around. and was like, yeah, we're good. Let's let's go do something else now. So, uh, yeah, I mean, but you got to get in some type of routine. I mean, even me here being at in my house, I mean, I'm in San Francisco. I live on a hill and I have to force myself to kind of get on, get some exercise, take a walk, get on my bike, ride around the city a little bit. But it, it's just tough to do when it's just you. There's no one like 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 you said, Dave, no one to keep you accountable. And I think that's that's going to be the important part. I don't know if you, you know, wh- whoever you're you're kind of sheltered in place with if they can kind of motivate you but it's hard to get motivated to kind of work out so you know these guys are going to have a challenge on their hands and I was listening yesterday and I about the basketball guys the basketball players I was fascinated that a lot of these basketball players didn't have hoops at their house you know and that's the cheapest sport you can play just get a hoop and shoot some hoop and a lot of these guys didn't have the equipment so I think it's important to have something that you can do or something you can kind of do as a routine. Yeah, it definitely is. I personally got lucky that I already had dumbbells that I bought last year to have in my backyard because now they're sold out. You you can't buy exercise stuff because everybody is, you know, obviously trying to get it to their house. So hopefully um, some of the 49ers guys have uh, workout gear at their house so they don't have to end up like Kyle Juszczyk at his cabin and have to lift (laughs) logs and stuff all the time. Although maybe he'll come in and in great shape this next year. We'll see. But, you know, as far as the 49ers roster, why don't we pivot a little bit to where they stand right now? Because it's not all too different than they ended with 2019. We've already talked about in our previous episode the the DeForest Buckner trade, so obviously they don't have one of their main centerpieces on defense, and we'll talk a little bit more about the plan to replace him. Some of that obviously involves DJ Jones, but on the offensive end, since we last have convened, the 49ers chose not to win a bidding war with New Orleans for Emmanuel Sanders, so they'll be down one of their receivers heading into next year. Now, obviously, we don't know what the final 2020 roster is going to look like yet because a huge component of player acquisition is still coming up as far as the NFL draft. That's uh, starting on April 23rd. But as of right now, on paper, the 49ers are slightly weaker on the defensive line because of uh, the loss of DeForest Buckner. And offensively, they don't have Emmanuel Sanders. Now, I think, Matt, that the plan for the 49ers, the overarching mentality here is they hope that Emmanuel Sanders' impact lives on. They hope that his tutelage of Debo Samuel and Kendrick Bourne carries forward into next year. And they hope that those guys have morphed from young guys into veterans at this point. And I think they're going to pick a receiver at some point in the draft. I am not convinced that it's going to be with the number 13 pick, but I think they're going to pick an impact guy in the draft and they're going to hope that 
players like Trent Taylor and maybe even Jalen Hurd can step up and, you know, help George Kittle, help Debo Samuel, help Kendrick Bourne out. And I think that's the 49ers' approach here. They didn't want to pay for an older receiver. They're instead hoping that the sum of the collective parts, which was helped a little bit by Emmanuel Sanders last year because he was the tutor, will will rise up in 2020. Yeah, the uh, the logic for, for not taking a receiver at 13 is that there's still going to be great receivers at number 31. And even if you traded number 31 and got, say, a, a mid-second round pick and some other day two picks, there'd be some good ones there too. I mean, it's a it's a loaded class. And so that's sort of what they're having to do right now is, is sort of weigh the difference between, okay, what really is the difference between taking CeeDee Lamb at number 13 and then taking, say, um, Denzel Mims, the receiver from Baylor. Is that a bigger difference than taking a defensive tackle there and taking Mims, or do you take the receiver at 13 and take the defensive tackle at 31? It's interesting because the middle rounds, second, third, and fourth, really are the money rounds in this this draft because there's so many positions that are, are so deep, and the 49ers don't have any picks then. So, it's logical that they're able to kind of trade one of those first-round picks or multiple second-day picks, and then all of a sudden your options go up. So I don't know who the, the trade partner is, but I can guarantee you that the 49ers are are starting to think along those lines. Dennis, what would you do? What position would you be looking at the most as far as that first pick, uh, number 13 overall? Well, I mean, I, I still don't know. I don't. Maybe you guys can uh, enlighten me. I, I still don't know the, the Joe Staley status. Is he thinking about retirement? Is he thinking about coming back? Uh, He'll be where back does that this stand? year for sure. Well, so okay. you're on to something, though. Joe Staley, he'll play this year that's as far as we know but he will be 36 this year so I think you're I see where you're heading here right you're thinking about drafting a tackle at 13 you know at this point I think you kind of have to to start planning and I I think you know that's what this team the bigger picture uh I think they they look at that tackle position and they look at guys that they have out there I mean there's, there's some good offensive tackles coming out in this draft class and I think you know, you take a look at that and you look at your status. I mean, you've kind of answered a little bit of that, maybe that guard position, but now you look at that tackle, which is probably the most, one of the most important positions on that offense. And you, you go to the draft and you look at that. And I think, like you said, Matt, there's, there's a lot of receivers that they're pretty deep and you have to figure out the one that fits into Kyle Shanahan. But I think you, you have to look at that offensive tackle. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, if you see an offensive tackle, go first round off the board uh, for the 49ers because you have to address that Joe Staley thing. Well, it's already happened for the 49ers. Remember 2018, everybody thought they were going to go for a defender because, well, not everybody. I think a couple people actually uh, saw the the offensive line. I'm not sure what you predicted, Matt, but I know Matt Mayoko predicted Mike McGlinchey and, and he was right. And the 49ers went for the tackle because that is a premium position and they recognized the importance of fortifying the offensive line. Well, I think you have a similar situation this year where everybody is saying wide receiver, wide receiver, wide receiver, but you guys both, you know, have made the great point that because this is a deep receiver class, you can probably get, you know, better value for that receiver a little bit later on. And and uh, you brought it up, Dennis, the great tackles in this draft. Iowa's Tristan Wirfs, Andrew Thomas out of Georgia, McKee Becton out of Louisville, Jedrick Willis out of Alabama. I mean, these are all top 10 talents, and they may actually all go in the top 10. So uh, with the 49ers are at number 13, it's a question of does one of these tackles fall to them? 
Werfs, I think, is the best fit for the 49ers because he's, I mean, that guy's a monster. We know they love blockers out of Iowa, right, with George Kittle. But Werfs can play right guard in the meantime. He could battle with Dan Brunskill for that right guard spot and then move out to left tackle when Joe Staley retires. Uh, I just think it's a question of, uh, is one of these guys available at 13? Because if one of those guys falls... I absolutely think it's a no-brainer. You go for the lineman. You don't pick a receiver, when there, especially when there's so many receivers. I think that a very valuable offensive tackle, a good offensive tackle, is just so much more of a value pick at number 13 than anything else. But then again, I don't know if these guys are going to hang around because of that reason. I think teams ahead of the 49ers will want to gobble up the, the premier offensive tackles as well. The guy from Alabama, Wills, would be probably the best fit to play guard for a little while and then move out to tackle. The, the issue that I'm finding, and, and this is a little bit like uh, the, the blind man describing the elephant, you know, I'm calling around trying to figure out who the 49ers have been looking at the most, and they really haven't had any interviews with any of those top tackles. Worfs, the guy from Iowa that David mentioned, Jedrick Wills, the guy I was just talking about, Becton from Louisville, those are basically considered the, the top three at the position, but they have been interviewing guys that they could take around 31, a Boise State offensive tackle, another one from Houston, I think it was. So that seems to be the area. And again, they didn't have an interview with McGlinchey because he knocked their socks off so well when they spoke to him at uh, at the Combine that year. But that seems to be the, the area that they're looking at that position. And maybe that's down the line. You know, maybe Joe Staley comes back one year. If everything went according to plan and the 49ers won the, the Super Bowl in 2020 or 2021, I would think that Joe Staley would not be coming back. So, yeah, uh, yeah. like Dennis said, you kind of have to think ahead a couple of years. And, and maybe that's what they're doing with that second overall pick. And if you want to address that defensive line, I mean, defensive linemen are everywhere, but you have to find the one that kind of fits in your system. Uh, and I, you know, first round defensive linemen, you know, it's it's something that they've invested. The 49ers have shown that they they don't mind spending money on their defensive line, but you have to feel that, that spot that's missing uh, with DeForce. And, you know, I, I haven't given up on, and I've said it a couple times here, Solomon Thomas, I think he's going to have a breakout season, but you still have to, you know, bill for the future. And there's some good defensive linemen. I mean, either that, that first pick or that 30, the 31st pick. If this goes according to what Matt was saying, and, and the 49ers are not using that number 13 pick on an offensive lineman, then it's probably, well, I mean, we have so many different options here. Then it's going to be either that defensive lineman to replace Buckner with 13, assuming they don't trade it away, or it's going to be a receiver, one of the, the premier guys at 13, right? Or cornerback. I think cornerback is an under-the-radar thing. But assuming that it's a defensive lineman, uh, Javon Kinlaw from South Carolina is the guy that everybody's talking about as kind of the prototypical replacement that you can just plug and play in Buckner's old spot. So that's an yeah, option I like him at 13. A lot. Yeah. yeah, he's he's he is a baller. He's a beast. He's got a great first step. He's strong. He's quick. He's lateral movement. I actually watched the combines for some reason. I don't know why I did, but uh, he looks good. I mean, I, I like him. Like you said, he's a guy that you can kind of plug in and play and put him around a lot of really good players. You know, just to add to that, Solomon Thomas is going into his final year of his contract. DJ Jones is going into the final year of his contract. Uh, they're looking at uh, Bosa and, and Armstead to be sort of the, the future, the wings, if you will, of that defensive line. But they've really got to start thinking about the interior of that uh, of that line. Um, 
Julian Taylor had had a, had a great year last year, but he, he suffered a, an ACL on uh, December 27th. So he's sort of questionable about whether he's going to be ready to go at the start of the season at least. So to me, that's more pointing to, boy, if they don't use the 13th overall pick on an interior defensive lineman, they've got to use their second pick wherever that second pick is because you're sort of weak right now with no DeForest Buckner, and you're definitely going to be weak there next year. Well, uh, you could argue very similarly for the secondary, though, because yeah. of all the contracts that are expiring after this year. I mean, Richard Sherman, Jaquaski Tart, Akello Witherspoon, Emmanuel Mosley, Kwan Williams, all those guys, contract expires after this season. So the secondary yeah, is about to become really pricey if you're going to need to re-sign everybody. So you, you have to do at least some of the restocking effort through the draft, and I think you'd preferably do it this year so you could start to you know develop some of these guys right so it's it's one of those things where i think the 49ers are in a spot where they have multiple needs that may not be exactly pressing at this very moment but within a year they're going to be pressing and it's always better to get out in front of some of these problems which is why they need more draft picks which is why they traded to forrest buckner to get more draft picks dennis brown had to take off so it's just me and you matt for uh uh, the, the rest of this show, I think he had to go uh, take care of the Meals on Wheels commitment this morning. So good for Dennis, and uh, we'll make sure that we uh, talk to him when he comes on next time. But uh, anyway, when you look at the 49ers in this balancing act, it's one of those where I could just see John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan almost you know, writing it on a whiteboard on their Zoom meeting or however they're talking. And it's one of those where, where they're seeing what's more important and where can we afford to be a little bit weaker does being stronger at receiver outweigh being weaker on the defensive line? And these are all tough decisions that you don't know if you've made right until you actually see the team play come fall. And and I think that it's got to be a pretty stressful time for them because they have fewer picks than potential needs, especially when you project out to the long term. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you're right about the defensive secondary. I know that they're looking at strong safeties, for example. I mean, we all saw what happened when Kwaski Tart left the lineup in, in December. There was a huge drop off there. And I think that they'd love to upgrade that and, and maybe even bring in a guy that could replace Kwaski Tart down the line. But, you know, they're looking at guys who are going to be picked in the third, fourth, fifth round. And, you know, they've got two fifth rounders, but they don't have any in the third and the fourth. So it just makes total sense. I mean, I, I've written about this too. I mean, they'd love to bring in a number two caliber tight end, somebody who could relieve uh, George Kittle from time to time, play alongside George Kittle on certain plays. But free agency, the draft, it's not a great tight end year. And if they did that through the draft, they would have to use probably a third or a fourth round pick on that position. They don't have a third or a fourth round pick. So you're right, more needs. And they're not you know, super pressing needs. I mean, they could get away with not having a high caliber tight end. But yeah, I'm sure every GM in the NFL would love to have more picks than he has. But uh, the 49ers do have seemingly a, a pretty good mechanism for augmenting their load. And uh, I expect that's going to happen on uh, April 24, probably the second day of the draft. Well, the tight end situation is interesting. And you wrote an article about the 49ers interest in a number two tight end recently, Matt. And here's why I, I think that's potentially a way for them to get around 
uh, selecting a high-profile receiver at all. And and I know this is going to sound blasphemous to probably most fans because everybody seems to be so conditioned to the 49ers picking a receiver. But what if the 49ers do trade back into you know some of those middle rounds, say the third, maybe the fourth round, and they do pick a good move tight end, a guy that could really complement George Kittle in the pass game and a guy that does see a lot of snaps – and what if they do move the pass game in that two tight end direction to the point where they don't have to use any of their premier picks on a wideout? Maybe they're trying to zag while other teams are zigging is, is what I'm suggesting here. And, you know, that could be an interesting way to get around this supposed lack of draft capital to match all of the needs. And, and you wrote more about this than, than, than I have, Matt. I've mentioned it passingly in a couple articles, but you have enlisted some potential names at tight end for the 49ers. Uh, I just wouldn't rule out that approach because we talk about the Patriots-style offense that the 49ers have implemented. Well, the Patriots back in the day um, were a little sparse at receiver in, in a few of those years, yet they ran the offense through Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez. So is it possible the 49ers find a partner for George Kittle and then just rely on the rest of the receivers like Kendrick Bourne, Debo Samuel, uh, you know, Trent Taylor, maybe even Dante Pettis to – improve and be a supporting cast i think that that uh, you can't rule out that path of attack no in fact um i had a conversation with uh john lynch recently and, and that's the exact duo that he brought up that, that gronkowski hernandez situation in in new england and how the 49ers would love to have something similar to that or he, he was talking the context of it was just how difficult it was to stop new england's passing attack when they did have two really, really high caliber tight ends. Um, you know, I think one of the questions would be, is there really a, you know, Hernandez level tight end in this draft? Uh, probably the best one is uh, Cole Kmet uh, from, from Notre Dame, who yeah. is expected to go in the middle of the, the second round. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that that's, that's absolutely a, a possibility. The counter argument is that, boy, I really have a hard time seeing Kyle Shanahan, the the former University of Texas receiver who takes a very special interest in wide receivers, both in the draft and and coaching them and watching them in practice, etc. I have a hard time seeing him sit out the greatest wide receiver draft of of the century, uh, of the last uh, 25 years, probably. So, I mean, I think that they'll take a wide receiver at some point, but yeah, if I had to guess, though, I mean, to me, defensive line is is the one that makes the most sense. I mean, you lost to Forrest Buckner. The team's philosophy is obviously load up on the defensive line, and then good things will happen on the rest of the defense in, in the linebacker core and in the secondary. And right now, they're frankly uh, weaker than they were at the end of the Super Bowl at that position, both through the trade of Buckner, the, the loss of Sheldon Day, some attrition as far as the uh, the injuries, and I'm speaking specifically of Julian Taylor. He's probably the one who stands the, the greatest chance of not being healthy for the start of the season. So that's where I would spend my biggest resource, which is that number 13 pick. And, and you mentioned Kinlaw. That's, that's an obvious choice. I mean, he's very Buckner-y. Buckneerian? What's the verb Buckneerian. there? Buckneerian. He, he, yes, yeah. he's very much like uh, DeForest Buckner. I mean, he could step into that three-technique spot. 
basically. You know, he's he's a little raw, and you know, he's he's not going to be as good as, as a rookie as he as he is a, a fourth round uh, a four year player. But uh, Dennis was right; he looked good in the combine, and he dominated the Senior Bowl. There wasn't anybody that could block him in that game. He would be a very interesting pick at number thirteen. My prediction is the 49ers are making or have made a philosophical decision as to how they're going to approach this great wide receiver draft right now. And by that, I mean, are they looking at this as, okay, this is the greatest wide receiver draft ever. We need to get the best or one of the premier guys and we need to use our first pick. Or are they looking at this as, oh, okay, this is the greatest wide receiver draft ever. That means we can wait a while because we're still going to find a great wide receiver later. I think once they make that decision, they'll base the rest of their draft on obviously that first decision. So they'll pick the best player available to them at number 13. They can't decide right now if they're going to use 13 on Kinlaw for, or a defensive tackle or on a cornerback or on a safety or on an offensive tackle because they don't know who's going to be available. So it'll all come down to draft day and who actually is still on the board at 13. And in my opinion, and this is just me speculating based on a very small piece of prior history that we have with the Mike McGlinchey uh, drafting in 2018, but my opinion is if one of the tackles they really like, and I think Becton, I don't know if he really fits into the scheme. He's huge, so I would cross him off the list. I think they're going to go for guys a little bit quicker, although he is athletic for how big he is. But I think, you know, it's more of a guy like Werfs or the guy from Alabama, Willis. I, I think if one of those guys is available, I think that will supersede the other positions, even Kinlaw. But the chances of them being available aren't that high. So I think Kinlaw at 13, because of their focus that you just mentioned on the defensive line, I think that that's not a bad bet for the 49ers to take him. Remember, uh, McGlinchey did not come in for an interview. The 49ers did not want to foreshadow or forecast that they were looking at him. They wanted to make sure that he was there. They didn't want another team trading ahead of them. So, you know, maybe that's the reason why no interview with with Wirfs uh, or no interview with uh, Jedrick Wills. There also hadn't been an interview to this point with... uh, Jerry Judy, which surprised me. I, I I would thought that if you're considering this guy at number 13, you would have talked to him. So, uh, you know, we may find out some more information in these next two weeks. That's when most of these uh, in the past, these official 30 visits uh, have occurred. And so I assume that's when most of these uh, these video conferences, video interviews that they're having with these guys will take place. So we may know a little bit more, but it's not real clear who they're zeroing in on at, at number 13, which makes it fun. I mean, uh, it'll be nice if there's some suspense when the, the 49ers are on the clock on April 23. Well, to wrap up, you might be wondering what the 49ers exact financial situation is and how this draft fits into all that, because they obviously still have at least one more big looming expense this offseason in the re-signing of George Kittle. And uh, this draft class, Matt, is really interesting to me because people have assumed for, you know, because they're so used to the 49ers having an ultra premium pick in the top five, they've assumed that the draft class would cost about $10 million to sign, which has been the case when they had those top five picks. But it's not the case anymore this year. It's significantly cheaper to sign the number 13 overall pick than it is Nick Bosa last year, who commanded like a $6.7 million cap hit in his first season. So all told, it will cost the 49ers a maximum of $5 million of cap space to sign the draft class this year. Even if they trade down and get a couple more second or third round picks, it's only going to be at most $5 million. And they're currently, after accounting for all these signings, 
at about $11 million this offseason. So you could do the simple math, 11 minus 5, that's $6 million spare dollars. That's before you consider parting ways with Marquise Goodwin, which would save you about four. Maybe Matt Breida, which would save you another three. So that, that means the 49ers have approximately, assuming they make some of these releases, $10 million in cap space free to front load a big extension for George Kittle this offseason. So the puzzle pieces have all come together. We see exactly where the 49ers are now. They spent with a restraint. They freed up money by not uh, signing DeForest Buckner and trading him away. And we see the grand plan. There is just enough space for that final puzzle piece to settle in there. And that final puzzle piece is a big extension for George Kittle. Yeah, and the story you wrote the other day about how the 49ers have divvied up their cap position by position that wide receiver and tight end are at 9.4 percent which is a lot lower than what the league average is so uh, you know once that that Kittle deal comes I would imagine that that gets up closer to what most teams have allotted now I'm sure most teams are allotting that to wide receivers versus tight end so the 49ers will be a little bit different there but that would make sense from a pie chart perspective as well yeah it's going to be fascinating and especially to see the backloading of that deal because they're going to have to backload it to some degree because they just don't have the cap space this year you don't want to ever zero out in cap space several months before the start of the season because then you don't have any wiggle room during the season last year for example the 49ers took on Emmanuel Sanders contract mid-season you can only do that if you have cap space so the 49ers want to make sure that they leave a little buffer and that explains why they didn't win the bidding war for Emmanuel Sanders, why they didn't win the bidding war for Indomitian Sue, who got $8 million from Tampa Bay. If the 49ers are paying Indomitian Sue $8 million right now, then they would have absolutely no wiggle room for negotiations with George Kittle. And th- then even if the negotiations with George Kittle worked out, they would have no wiggle room for the rest of the season. So they wouldn't be able to make any deadline trades or or that. So y- you can see how they're operating. And then the cap is supposed to go up significantly next year. And they're trying to push all that stuff to later on when the cap does increase. So you're just trying to stay ahead of the wave, so to speak, or you're surfing the wave, I guess, uh, as the 49ers are doing right now. But it's going to be fascinating. We'll talk more about this uh, before the draft. I'm sure we'll have at least one more episode to preview that for you. We hope that you're all staying healthy, doing well at home, staying as productive as you can. I know it's tough for everybody, but hopefully this podcast helped. And and Matt, I uh, you have been staying productive, right? So uh, I, I think you're um, still cranking out some good pieces on your end. Yeah, I think the the draft is is saving us. Uh, there's still a lot of interest in the draft, so that'll be uh, what we write mostly about over these next. It's coming up soon, right? So uh, two and a half weeks, and and uh, and it's draft time. Yeah, we need it. I, I honestly hate this time of the year. I was supposed to be on a vacation right now. I was actually supposed to be as we speak in Chernobyl at the town and the nuclear power plant in 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 Ukraine. I was going to go check it out. Um, obviously I'm not there anymore, but this is the time of the year I actually take a little bit of a vacation because I am so excited to actually know who the players are that are actually on the roster. I I, I want to talk about how it's going to actually affect the 49ers because I'm more of an X's and O's guy and there's just so much speculation over these couple weeks that it almost makes my head hurt but I'll join in the speculation parade now because um, I'm not on vacation obviously and there are a lot of options it's certainly interesting but I just can't wait until the players are actually on the roster because then you can make 
more concrete judgments. And that's just my opinion. So. so some people seek out white sand beaches and you seek out uh, broken uh, nuclear reactors uh, as your vacation spots. Am, yeah. am I getting that right? So, some people are saying that, that uh, I caught a break by not being able to go on this trip. <laughs> they think I'm a little crazy. But my best friend and I, we're... We we're planning to go check it out. Um, well, obviously, my mom, you know, and I'm, I'm half Czech, so we're from uh, one of those countries that that, that used to be uh, from behind Iron Curtain. I was born in America, but that whole incident when that nuclear reactor uh, blew up, it, it impacted the whole world, but especially Eastern Europe with a lot of the rain and stuff that came down after. So it's something I feel a little bit connected to, and I wanted to see the history there. And obviously, everybody's talking about it now because of the HBO show. So. Maybe we'll do it next time, but uh, this time I'm safe from that. Well, it's it's an interesting place because obviously people have not been allowed back there, and it's what a, more than a quarter century now since it it happened. So they've been studying the the wildlife there, which has had free reign, and it hasn't taken the you know the wolves and every other critter in that region very long to to take over again. So uh, from a sort of a ecological standpoint, it's very interesting, and some of these. These animals, of course, are, are radioactive because it's such a hot area still, but uh, sort of fascinating from, from that point of view, too. Yeah, so that's the nature of the area has overtaken the city. And that for me, that's the most interesting part is that these people evacuated the city at the snap of a finger and thought they would be coming back within weeks. That's what they were told when they were put on buses in 1986. Uh, yet, obviously, they never returned. So they didn't take any of their belongings, only their, you know, documents like their passport. Maybe they didn't even have passports in the USSR then, but their their citizen ID documents and, and all this and all that and everything else, including teddy bears and clothes and everything is still there as it was behind the Iron Curtain in 1986 with trees and grass kind of growing and taking back the city. And I mean, it's just just a fascinating time capsule. And obviously, it's a, a little bit off the, the, the beaten path as far as tourism goes. So you have to go with a guide and you have to make sure you're going in an area that doesn't have a lot of radiation. And uh, th those are all worries that um, I think my mom had, obviously, when I told her that I was going there. But uh, uh, she won't have to face them at least this year. No, it's uh, it's an interesting trip. I, w I wish you were, were doing it. You might have to put it off to 2021. Yeah, 20, we'll, we'll see. Well, let's, let's just hope that this is just an inconvenience, obviously, not being able to go on, on, on a vacation. There's people that uh, have much uh, greater inconveniences and a lot much greater sadness is going on right now. So let's hope that uh, that gets taken care of first. Let's help how we can in that regard. And then we could talk about traveling again when uh, this is behind us in the rearview mirror. So those of you listening right now at home, stay strong stay healthy, do what you can to make the best out of uh, an inopportune time. And uh, we'll come out of this uh, better than, than when we started ultimately. But it's just going to take some time. We'll take some patience. Well, Matt, thank you. Thanks to Dennis Brown, who's already out uh, donating some of his meals. And um, thanks to everybody at uh, Athletic, including Tanika, who is uh, producing this show as usual. This is David Lombardi. The Here's the Catch podcast will join you next time. 